Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we look at this subject of temptation, how we can understand it and overcome the temptation of sin that we all face. Genesis chapter 3. It is the account of the fall, the fall of mankind into sin. After God tells us about the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 and the creation especially of man and woman in Genesis chapter 2, we come to Genesis chapter 3. The scriptures read as such. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, we come before your word. We pray once again, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart. We might see, understand your holy word. We pray, Father, that as we all struggle with the temptation to sin, that, Father, you would grant to us insight, understanding, that we might be able to walk in holiness before you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. One of the things that we will always struggle with throughout the rest of our lives is sin, because we live in a fallen world. And in the past number of weeks, a number of weeks ago, we began looking at sin and suffering and how we might be able to help one another through periods of suffering. But we look at this subject of sin and think to ourselves, why is it so alluring? How does sin come about in my heart? What does it take to overcome temptation and sin in order to live a godly life? Sin is so and very enticing, much like perhaps the ABC News report earlier this year in February about a little boy named Mason. This little boy was in a restaurant while his parents were eating at a beef and Brady restaurant, and they were eating while he was standing in front of this glass cabinet machine, vending machine, the one that has the claw there where you put in a coin and the claw goes on to pick up a toy. Well, he fixed his eyes on one particular toy, and he was rather undaunted, according to the news report, by the fact that there was glass between he and that toy. And somehow, in some way, he found some opening by which he was able to manage to 
crawl into that machine to go and get his toy that he so wanted, even though the claw wouldn't get it for him. And in the process of doing so, he got stuck. So here is a little boy within this little machine with a claw on it and a whole bunch of toys, and he can't seem to get himself out. Well, the good news is that there were some firefighters also eating at O'Brady's restaurant as well. They told the call 911, and within a few minutes, they were able to get the boy unstuck. Simply to say, though, that we are very much like that little boy, Mason, aren't we? We see something we want, we're undaunted by the fact that there is some sort of inhibition there in between us and our toy or whatever we want so badly, and we make our way in and sometimes we get stuck because of our own desires that come about. James describes this for us in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. From lust to temptation to sin, Genesis chapter 3 brings for us an illustration of what that principle is, how that all comes about, an understanding of man's problems, because there it was in Genesis chapter 3 that paradise was lost. It was there that mankind was plunged into the cesspool of sin and struggle by which we struggle today. Now we experience death both externally and internally, both physical and spiritual. And if we're going to live this life that God has called us to, if we're going to live a holy life, a life that overcomes sin, it's important for us to know how it comes about, as James tells us in James 1.14. Here in Genesis 3, as I mentioned, it is for us an illustration of how it all came about. And so we look at the passage today, and we look and see in the parts that are outlined here for us as Eve encounters the snake and the temptation. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, here's the temptation. The temptation is presented to Eve. The word serpent here is synonymous with the word dragon that is used in the book of Genesis in Genesis 12. Those of you who are in high school ministry know we've looked at this. Genesis, I mean, Revelation chapter 12, the dragon comes in. It's the same synonymous word that is used there. It is a snake that Satan has possessed, and he engages Eve, and he says, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, when temptation comes, there are several elements to be aware of as we look at this temptation that comes, because there are certain things that Satan wants you to do, your sin wants you to do, and that is, first of all, to question the Word of God, to question the Word of God. Even the question that is presented here seems like an innocent question, but I don't think Satan was there to learn or to somehow clarify the truth. The first thing that happens is often the twisting of the truth when he says, well, has God said such and such? When we look at what God has said back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. 
Satan's plan was to place into her mind this questioning of the Word of God. Did God really say such and such? It's not some innocent question. It's not some question that just simply wants to learn or clarify. He is there to question the Word of God and place in her mind the skepticism of what God really said. And unfortunately, sometimes people are brought up that way. Sometimes people learn from either family or friends or school or their parents who always question, always question authority, always come across with skepticism, always ask, if you say A, they think B, and they think, is that argument good enough or whatnot, or God doesn't seem to explain this, I don't understand why, and therefore they question the Word of God, and that's how oftentimes they may be patterned in thinking. And that's rather unfortunate because many times when God says, He doesn't necessarily give us the reason outright. We're not entitled to having the reasons for everything that God commands. When God commands us of something, we are to obey whether or not we understand or not. When people see something, sometimes they think, well, I don't know if God said that or God didn't say this or it's not mentioned in the Bible. And They hem and haw and lose confidence in the Word of God. They're not noble-minded like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17. No, they come across as skeptics when it comes to the Bible, always trying to find the flaw, always trying to find the loophole, always trying to find out how can they get around a particular thing. It's like the Pharisees in the New Testament when Jesus told them to love your neighbor as yourself, you know? They came across, the Pharisees did, and says, well... That applies to neighbors, but it doesn't apply to enemies. You can love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. That's what we say because we found a loophole within whatever Jesus is saying. He didn't say this, et cetera, et cetera. And rather than being teachable, we come across or can easily question the Word of God, and that's what Satan wants us to do. He not only wants us to question the Word of God, but secondly, he wants us to question the character of God. God said... Did God say you should not eat from any tree of the Garden of Eden? God's command to Adam back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, comes across as a positive command. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Where Satan's questioning of not only the word, but the character of God says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And casts God in this picture in which somebody might begin to think, well, is God withholding something that is good? Is God really out for my best interest? Is God thinking of what might make me happy? Satan casts God as the one who is restrictive of God, who wants to reign on one's parade in life, as one who ultimately limits your freedom. And that's how some people look at Christianity. They don't want to become a Christian because they don't want to be bound by all of these particular rules, quote-unquote, as if they somehow make life dreary and oppressive as true Christianity restricts, quote-unquote, what they believe is true freedom. Common rationalization, isn't it? Common rationalization when people say to themselves, you know what, God wants me to be happy, right? God wants me to be happy. I mean, I feel so good. I'm happy. I'm more satisfied. When I do my own thing, they think to themselves, or just once won't hurt. Or when temptation and sin comes, 
then comes the temptation, well, you've done it once and nothing happens, so it's okay to do it again. They commit the sin. They're trying to justify themselves, thinking no one will know, no one will find out. And then we become the judge of the Word of God, and the basis of our judgment is what? The basis of our judgment is how it makes me feel, whether or not I'm happy, because we think to ourselves, as Satan wants Eve to think, that God is withholding something from you, as we will see later on. God is withholding something from you that makes you happy, that God wants to withhold this uh, knowledge of good and evil. But it is these instructions and laws that are given to us, these principles that are given to us in the Word of God, that are given for our genuine happiness, that are given to us so that we might live a life that is filled with genuine joy. You can imagine what would happen in any society, here in the United States at least, when people decide, hey, you know what? What makes me happy is going past whatever red light I want because I'm the right of way. I'm more important. I don't have to stop at a stop sign. I don't have to follow the speed limit laws or whatever it might be. And we think that makes us happy. And that makes us happy for a temporary time until we're in some sort of accident. Parents place limits on children because they care. In fact, surveys show that kids know their parents care when they're not allowed to run free and do whatever they want. And that same principle runs when it comes to the Word of God. God has granted to us instruction. He has granted to us principles. He's granted to us guidelines so that we might live within these boundaries, so that we might have a genuinely joyful and faithful life that is according to His Word. Satan wants us, though, to question not only the Word of God, not only to question the character of God, but we see here Eve's response to all of that. Once she is posed with that question, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you should not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, I've always found this passage interesting because here Eve is standing in the middle of the garden and this snake comes up and begins to talk to her and she talks back. If I go over to your house and your dog begins to talk to me, I think I would have a problem. I think that something is wrong with me, not with your dog. Dogs don't talk and snake, snakes don't talk either. Not only that, this snake speaks in Hebrew. Now, I'm sure she could have been surprised. The Bible doesn't say whether or not she was surprised or not, but somehow she's having a conversation with a snake. And so here she says, she quotes what God's word says, and she adds to it, saying, or touch it. Well, that's not what God told Adam. We looked at that in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And some commentators think, well, maybe Adam added that, whatever it might be, but whatever it is, she misquotes the word of God. Now, that's very important because, you see, we don't have the right to add to the Word of God whatever we want. We don't have the right to add and it underscores the importance of knowing the Word of God so that we can apply it to our lives in a rightful way, lest we say things and misquote it or take from it or whatever it might be. It underscores that idea that we need to know and understand the Word of God. 
Satan, though, wants you to believe a lie. Not only does he want you to question the Word of God, question the character of God, but he wants you to believe a lie. Thirdly, he responds with a blatant lie. He says to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan is the father of lies, as the Bible tells us in John chapter 8, verse 44, when Jesus is speaking to the false teachers, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, we do not emulate godliness. We emulate Satan. Satan is a liar. At its core, he offers you a lie, and that lie is God is wrong, that what God is trying to withhold from you is actually good. That is the lie, that somehow what Satan has to offer for you is better than what God has to offer for you. That whatever it is that Satan has to offer will be more fulfilling and will bring you more satisfaction and joy than what God has. And you want to be like God, he says, don't you? He mixes truth with error. He mixes it so that we will be like God, don't you? Don't you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? Do you know that Mormons and Buddhists and the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel teachers have some kind of promise that you will be God, or a little God of some type. Kenneth Copeland says, quote, Now Peter said, by exceeding great and precious promises, you become partakers of the divine nature. All right, are we gods? We are a class of gods, unquote. Or Benny Hinn says, quote, God came from heaven, became a man, made man into little gods, went back to heaven as a man. You might think that's far out. Mormons have a teaching where you'll become a god and you'll have some sort of rulership over some world. You might think some of these are far out for the word faith movement, but that is one of the fastest growing movements in Christianity today. Temptation is that you are destined to be a god somehow. Don't believe the lie. Satan wants you to believe in the lie. And he says to them, you will know good and evil. Now, you think that's not so bad, right? You'll know good and evil. I mean, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being discerning? The problem is that Adam and Eve wouldn't know good and evil in the same way that God knows good and evil. Adam and Eve would, once they fall and sin, they would know good and evil experientially. They would know good and evil externally as well as internally because of what sin has done in their own lives. Whereas God only knows good and evil both, he knows good and evil externally but not experientially because God has not sinned. It's like a surgeon and a cancer patient. A surgeon and a cancer patient, both of them know cancer but in vastly different ways. The patient knows cancer both externally, the effects of it, and internally because it's eating away at their body, whereas the surgeon, if they've never had cancer before, they will only know of it externally. Practical point, by the way, 
is that you don't need to personally experience suffering or tragedy or struggles or the effects of sin in order to be able to help someone with it. You don't need to personally experience it. While it might help you to empathize, it might help you to be more sympathetic, while it might help you have better understanding, it's not a prerequisite for helping somebody who is struggling in a particular sin. Some people have this mindset that says, well, you can't help me because you don't understand what it's like. You've never been through blank. Whatever it might be. Paul writes, though, for us in Romans 15, 14, my brother and I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another, to be able to help one another, to be able to minister to one another. Galatians 6, 1 reminds us that we are to restore one another. You who are spiritual, restore one another, who is caught in a sin, People suffering from leukemia, for instance, do not restrict themselves only to medical professionals that have had leukemia themselves. Cities don't hire cops that have all been ex-cons so that they all know what it's like to be involved in crime. No. Likewise, you can be a tremendous blessing and a tremendous help to those who are struggling, even though you may not have experienced that particular sin yourself, because you can help them. God has granted to you the wisdom of the Word of God to help them. In Genesis chapter 3, though, Eve would experience, and so would Adam, the pain of sin, not only externally but internally as well, because Satan baited her to question the Word of God, to question the character of God, to believe in a lie, and then you're ripe for the fall. You're ripe for the fall. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, this is the pattern. This is an illustration of the principle we saw in James chapter 1, verse 14. She saw, she desired, she took, she spread her sin. It's an illustration for us. First of all, falling into sin begins with seeing, with seeing. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. Whether you're looking at it with your physical eyes, your mind's eyes, it begins with seeing, perceiving something. If you don't know something doesn't exist, you won't desire it. It all begins with seeing or perceiving something. That's why it is so important to protect what you see. I remember many, many years ago, there was a, a guy who gave me a call. He was having difficulty because he would have to walk home from his bus stop to his home, his apartment, and he'd walk through a rather seedy, couple of streets that were rather seedy with some ungodly establishments. And rather than fighting temptation every day, he simply decided to take a different route home so that he wouldn't see it, so he wouldn't perceive it. That's why that children's song, you remember that little children's song that goes, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. King David hadn't kept his eyes away from watching Bathsheba, then there would have been no adultery, no murder of her husband, the downward spiral of his kingdom. 
And we all know our eyes have huge appetites. Our eyes have huge appetites, don't they? I mean, I think when I, when I go home sometimes, I go to the grocery store, and my mother has always said, well, you know, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, right? And I go to the grocery store, I think, okay, I'll just need some milk, or maybe your wife is pick up some milk, some eggs, some bread. You know, you never find that next to the cash register, right? I mean, when I go to the grocery store, I have to walk and get bread, and I walk by this chicken wing bar. And it has garlic wings, salt and vinegar wings, barbecue wings, teriyaki wings, piles of these really good buffalo wings, etc. And the smell just gets to you, right? And it looks even better when it's on sale. It looks so good. And I come back with bread and JoJo's and chicken wings, etc. You know, Pickle Underhill writes this book, Why We Buy the Science of Shopping. And he says, two-thirds, two-thirds of the things you buy in the supermarket, we had no intention of buying. You want to go get your eggs? You know what? You walk by the kettle chips and the soda pop and all of that sort of thing. They always put it in the back. And it's strategic. They do that on purpose. <laughs> it begins with seeing. Secondly, it begins, secondly, with desiring. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now, no matter what you tell your wife, chicken wings won't make you wise. They're healthier than the chips, but, you know, they're bad to some extent. It begins with seeing, and then your heart desires. It begins to covet those things you wish, you desire, you want something. Sometimes they belong to somebody else, you know. It begins there. Advertisers know this. Advertisers know this. They know that you, they need to create a desire within your heart to make you think you need something when you don't, to be happy, to be healthy, etc., etc. Because if you've never seen it, you have no idea what it's for, you won't desire it. It's like, it's like that YouTube video that, that has, a, has a, a lady that bought her father a, a new iPad. And he thinks it's a chopping board. And so he's, how's your, you know, and he's chopping and says, oh, it's working out well, etc. And she sees him using this thing as a chopping board. You have no idea what it's for. You're not going to miss out if you've never seen it or know what it does. So, don't look at those Black Friday ads. You'll save a lot. <laughs> come and go, go rake your leaves, whatever it is. If you don't have any leaves, you can come here. There's plenty of leaves here you can rake. Sin conceives when it sees and it desires, and what happens? She thinks, this will make me wise. And that's where the fall happened. Sin wasn't. Sin wasn't when she took the fruit. Sin happened already in her heart. Sin already happened in her heart when she desired that which was sinful, and it acted out in that sin because people get this confused all the time. They think to themselves, you know what, if I just think it, it might be okay. Nobody will know that I'm thinking or fantasizing or thinking about such and such. You know, that's where, that's where sin is already conceived in the heart. You begin thinking over things. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over the, your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flows the springs of life. For from it flows the springs of life. Sin always looks so good at first. I mean, you watch over your heart. When you begin to see, gosh, they have this, but I don't have this. How come they get that, and I don't get this? Why is it that whatever it might be, I remember when we were in Africa, 
And one of the missionaries had this really beat-up car, and it always had, you know, they, they don't really fill their potholes too well, so, it, I mean, always problems with the suspension and all that. Rickety car, old. But they were happy with it. Why? Relatively speaking, no one else had cars. They were glad just to have a car. And a lot of times, we become so discontent because we're in this comparison mode of others and we see what they have and we see what the ads say, we see what we think and we desire something that we didn't even plan to have. I mean, I try to go to Costco and not take a cart, you know? It prevents me from taking up too much stuff. We see, we watch over our heart with all diligence. Sin always looks so good. Always looks so good, makes things so attractive, so enticing. Sin has conceived that joy and that fellowship is replaced then by what? Oh, that short-term satisfaction is replaced by guilt and the shame that will come. That's why Steve Green writes in his lyrics to guard your heart. The human heart is so easily swayed and often betrayed by the hand of emotion. You dare not leave the outcome to chance. But you must choose in advance or live with the agony, such needless tragedy. So often in our culture, we have this train. We have this train and the locomotive is feelings. Feelings, desires, thinking. Whereas we should have our thinking leading the train, then our desires and our actions will follow. We must not lose the outcome to chance, but we must choose in advance, seeing, desiring, and then she took. She took from its fruit, the Bible says. Falling into sin has as its process taking. After sin is conceived in the heart, it leads to a sinful act. There's no indication in the passage that this fruit was any different than any other fruit. It wasn't necessarily glowing. It wasn't necessarily that this fruit was laced with something in particular. This tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a special tree. But it was a sin in the heart that led to the act of taking the fruit, coveting what was not belonging to her. Satan offered her a fabrication. Satan offered her a fabrication. Short-term gratification. Sin led to long-term guilt and consequences. Short-term gratification led to long-term guilt and consequences because sin, it entices you and it satisfies only for a short time, but it robs away genuine joy because it's only a fabrication. Much like ABC News reported last year in June, there were some teenagers who had robbed this they, they went in the grocery store and they, they, they stole a cake. They stole a cake from the bakery. I guess it was embarrassing that already they got caught and we were apprehended, but it was more embarrassing that the cake they stole was one of those cardboard fabrication cakes. <laughs> so the grocery store didn't press charges. I guess it, you can't have your cake and eat it too type of thing. They saw, they desired, they took, because Satan offered her a fabrication, offered her a counterfeit. And then sin spread, sin spread. 
Fourthly, she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Her sin led to Adam's sin. Some say, well, Adam should have been there to bounce out of the bushes with his hoe and hack off the neck of the snake, but he wasn't nowhere to be found. But the difference between the two that say Eve was deceived. Eve was deceived, it tells us in the book of Timothy. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. And no sin, no sin, no one ever sins without affecting others. No one ever sins. Your sin, even in private, affects other people. My sin in my own life affects other people. You say, how? What what if it's a, a small sin? What if it's something that is between me and God or whatever? Because it has a number of effects upon your own life. Not only have you grieved the Spirit of God, you've caused a break in your relationship with God, your prayers are impeded, you live with the guilt, you're not as effective in service, a whole host of other things. When you sin and you are focused upon yourself and what you desire, then where are your eyes? Your eyes are not on facing and meeting the needs of others. Your eyes are not on how can I pray to bless other people. Your eyes are upon you. And your effectiveness in the body of Christ, why would you want to serve? Why would you want to share? Why would you want to give to others? Why would you want to do when your eyes are focused on you because of your own sin and me because of my own sin? Our ministry is impeded by our own sin, and so we do not sin and not affect the body of Christ. And when we sin our desire, that drive, that desire to do what is right is impeded much hindered. Our sinful attitudes, our sinful behavior, even our sinful outlook on life, etc., is dangerous to the church. It's after, in King David's life, as we've been learning in Sunday school, that David's kingdom was on the rise ever since he, he took office as the king of Israel. And it was at its pinnacle, a blessing and power until his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And after that, his family began to fall apart and God began to bring judgment. Even after he confessed his sin, because of his sin that led to her husband's murder and then his sons would rebel, his sons would commit immorality and then his kingdom would face, many people died. Many people died because of his sin. The New York Times, about 30 years ago, reported in one of the largest or most significant radioactive accidents in the history of mankind, Brazil. In Brazil, there were, because of this accident, there were 112,000 people who were contaminated by radioactivity and four people died. Several homes had to be destroyed. The International Atomic Energy Agency said it was one of the worst world's worst radiological incidences ever. It happened because there was a private radio, radiotherapy institute moved to a new site, and they left behind a, a, a container, a container of radioactive material. Inside some unit that was obsolete, it was used for cancer treatments. And there were two men that illegally went in, and they partially demolished the building, disassembled, they disassembled the unit. And this container, they thought maybe it has some scrap metal value, and so they wheeled it home. They wheeled it home, 
And one of the thieves, they punctured a small hole inside of that container in its thick window, because there was a window there on the container so they could see inside, quote, allowing him to see a deep blue light coming from the tiny opening he had created, unquote. Well, for scrap metal, they sold it to another guy, the owner of a local scrapyard, and he, quote, noticed the deep blue glow coming from the punctured capsule, thinking that the capsule's contents were valuable or even supernatural. He immediately brought it into his house, and over the next three days, he invited his friends, he invited his family to come view the strange glowing substance, unquote. And then they took the machine apart, and they found this blue dust, which later told the doctors it glowed in the dark, and it's pretty blue powder, and they, people handled it, they examined it, they even rubbed it on their skin, and then people began very sick, and they began to die, all because of the sin of two people who broke in and out of covetousness took what did not belong to them, and thousands of people were affected, and sin spreads in the same way. When Eve took that fruit from the tree, she shared with her husband, and there in sin infected the entire earth. That is why Paul in the book of Corinthians, Paul in the book of Corinthians write this, writes this scathing letter to the church. He writes a scathing letter to the church, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he addresses a particular issue, and that issue is that the church has allowed a person who claims to be a Christian and yet is involved in immorality with his stepmother. His father has, a, has another wife, who's not his mother, but he has a wife, and he is involved with immorality with her. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. In other words, this type of thing doesn't even happen among those who are not a part of the Jewish community, the church, the people who don't know you, non-Jews, Gentiles. Worse yet, worse yet, the Corinthian church was very proud of that fact. They were very proud of the fact that they had continued to accept this man whom they had known had an immoral, immoral relationship with his stepmother, Sort of the thing, look at how accepting we are. Look at how open-minded we are. Look at how inclusive we are as a church. We tolerate this guy and his sin that continues on. And Paul writes a scathing, strong rebuke and instructs them as to what to do. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Stop bragging about it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. In other words, stop bragging about how open-minded, accepting you are of the sin. Remove him from the church so that his sin will not spread to others. In other words, if... You accept him. You know what everybody else will think? What's wrong with this? What is wrong with this attitude? What's wrong with this man? I can do the same things that he is doing and continue to do that. He 
He says it is like leaven. You allow sin to continue on and permeate the church just like leaven does in a lump of dough. No, do not do that. You remove it from you so that you can be a new and pure lump of dough. Sin has its effect upon others. Sin spreads. Our sin impacts others. So, how do we resist temptation and have victory? Be careful. Be careful not to question the goodness of God and the plan of God, not to question the Word of God. Be careful not to believe in the lie, the lie that Satan and temptation and that sin is more satisfying than what God has to offer you when you walk in obedience and faith. Be careful of what you see. Be careful of your desires to ask yourself, what is it that I really want? Be careful of your actions. Be careful that your sin doesn't spread to others. Because we love the things that we love sometimes so very much that it is our own downfall and our own, our own doom. You know, men in Africa who trap animals for the zoos, they've said that some of the hardest animals to trap are those of the ring-tailed monkey. Uh, they're hard to catch. But there are those who are Zulus who have been catching the ring-tailed monkey for a long, long time, and they say it's simple. There's this little monkey that runs around. They've been able to catch him just like that, no problem. The way they do it is because they know that this ring-tailed monkey really loves a particular seed out of a melon that grows on a vine, and they're their favorites. So what they do is they take this melon, they put a little hole in it, and they just leave it there. And they know that these monkeys will come. And these monkeys will reach their hand into that hole in order to grab those seeds that they so very much love. And when they try to withdraw their hand, they can't because their fist is now too big. And now they've got this melon that they're dragging around on their little hand. And they can't go anywhere. Their fist is bigger than the hole, and they pull and they tug, they screech, they fight. And the Zulus just come over there and pick the monkey up. And they're unwilling to let go of the seed that they so love, even if it meant their capture. They don't want to let go for their own freedom. Maybe that's, that's us. Unwilling to let go of whatever sin it is that we love. Unwilling to let go and refuse, even though it may be to our own hurt. Unwilling to let go, even though we know that God says no. That God says stop. Even willing to not let go when we, in our hearts, know it is wrong. We refuse to repent. Is that us? Is that you? Is there a sin in your life? Whatever it is, that, that pride or that aiming for some sort of thing or desiring whatever it might be. You know what? You and I, we have a price on our head. Satan has a price on our head. He already knows what kind of seed attracts us. And he's placed that melon out there so that you'll come by and you're going to grab that seed and put your little hand in there. What is it that you want so bad you're willing to sin in order to get? Let me encourage you, trust God. 
Trust the Word of God. Trust the wisdom of God that God wants the best for you, and He, in His Word, has instructed us and given us the way to genuine joy in order that we might overcome sin and experience what it is, true freedom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which gives us the precious promises that no temptation, no temptation, O Father, that no temptation will come that will overtake us, but such as common to man, and that you are faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that we will be able to endure it. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to ask ourselves the tough questions. Of what seed is it that we so desire? What is it that we so want that we will sin in order to get it? We pray, God, grant to us your grace that we might resist, that we might Choose not to look, choose not to desire, choose not to take, and thus spread our sin. God, may we live a righteous life, empowered by your Spirit, guided by your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.